If the president doesn't know better, which I, he has to know better, then my lord, we're in much more trouble than I ever thought we were. Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, elsewhere in California on KFOI Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove and KEPW in Eugene, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI in Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Halenville, New York, WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, in Janesville, Wisconsin, on WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, but he's taken a long Labor Day weekend off. So you got me again. I'm Nicole Sandler, host of The Nicole Sandler Show, based at nicolesandler.com and found here fairly regularly. Thanks for joining me today. We've got a busy show. A little later on, we're going to talk to the editor-in-chief of a brand new independent news organization. It's nonprofit. It's nonpartisan. It's non-opinionated. It's straight news. What a concept. And in just a little bit, we're going to check in with historian and author Rick Perlstein, who's just released his fourth and final book in the series of the rise of the conservative movement in the United States. Rick's great, so stick around for him. But first, there's a lot going on, so let's get the latest news. All right? I don't like losers. Yep. That was Donald Trump back in 2015, referencing his disdain for Senator John McCain, who's considered a hero because of his time as a POW in Vietnam, especially his decision not to go home unless the other prisoners were also released. In conversation with Frank Luntz, then-candidate Trump made his beliefs very clear. John McCain has been, in my opinion, not so hot. And I supported him. I supported him for president. I supported him. He lost. He let us down. But, you know, he lost. So I never liked him as much after that, because I don't like losers. But, but Frank, Frank, let me get to it. He hit me. He's not a war hero. He's a war hero. He's a war hero because he was captured. I like people that weren't captured, okay? And that wasn't the only time he said it. Sources say that privately, Trump continues the theme, insisting that military personnel captured or killed in battle are, quote, losers. This revelation came barreling into the lead story across the nation Thursday night as The Atlantic dropped a blockbuster about Trump's feelings about soldiers who get injured or killed 
or even just enlist. In late night tweets on Thursday, he claimed a story in The Atlantic was nothing more than a plot by, quote, jealous failures to sabotage his chances in the November 3rd election. In one of the tweets, he wrote, I never called John a loser and swear on whatever or whoever I was asked to swear on that I never called our great fallen soldiers anything other than heroes. In fact, Trump has in the past described McCain as a loser and even tweeted out a quote of himself issuing the insult in 2015 along with an article about his comments. I'm a loser. Seriously. And then there's this story on a Memorial Day visit to Arlington National Cemetery in 2017 with then Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly. They visited the grave of Kelly's son, Lieutenant Robert Kelly, when Trump reportedly turned to him and said, quote, I don't get it. What was in it for them? In other news, law enforcement officers on Thursday fatally shot a self-described Antifa supporter, Michael Forrest Rhinel, the suspect in the fatal weekend shooting of Aaron Danielson, one of the Trump supporters who intentionally clashed with anti-racism protesters in Portland, Oregon. Officers were trying to take Rhinel into custody. He reportedly ran when officers fired shots, and that's when he was killed. Rhinel appeared to confess to the shooting in an interview with Vice News published Thursday night. I had no choice. I mean, I, I, I had a choice. I could have sat there and watched them kill a friend of mine of color. New revelations out of Rochester, New York, about the suffocation death of yet another unarmed black man at the hands of police. The family finally got a hold of body cam recordings and released them on Wednesday. And on Thursday, the mayor of Rochester suspended seven police officers over that death. The body cam footage showed one officer with his hands on Prude's head and another with a knee on his back. Prude was naked and allegedly high on PCP when he cried, you're trying to kill me, as he was pinned to the ground. Joe Prude said that his brother Daniel was mentally ill and that he called police that night, quote, to get help, not for my brother to get lynched. California is bracing for another blast of extreme heat this weekend that could make work harder for firefighters after they made progress toward containing the second and third largest wildfires in the state's history. Much of California, Arizona, and Nevada are under extreme heat watches and warnings expected to last through Sunday. The National Weather Service office in Los Angeles warned that the conditions could cause deadly heat illness and increase the likelihood of large wildfires. The August jobs report is out. Another 1.4 million jobs were added to the U.S. economy in August as the jobs recovery continued to slow. The unemployment rate dropped to 8.4 percent in August, marking the fourth month of declines, even as the pace of job growth is slowing. Keep in mind, America is still down 11.5 million jobs since February. And Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden held a press conference Thursday afternoon where he addressed a wide range of issues and did a great job of taking on Donald Trump. Here's a sampling of some of his answers. If what is written in The Atlantic is true, it's disgusting. And it affirms what most of us believe to be true, that Donald Trump is not fit to be the job of president, to be the commander in chief. If these statements are true, the president should humbly apologize to every gold star mother and father and every blue star family that he's denigrated and insulted. Who the heck does he think he is? Is it true? 
We've heard from his own mouth his characterizations of an American era John McCain as a loser in 2015. Donald Trump said he was not a war hero. I like people who weren't captured. Well, good for him. And his dismissal of the traumatic brain injury suffered by troops serving in Iraq as mere headaches. If it's true, and based on other things he said, I believe the article is true, I'd ask you all the rhetorical question. How do you feel? How would you feel if you had a kid in Afghanistan right now? How would you feel if you lost a son, daughter, husband, wife? How would you feel, for real? It's deplorable. Anybody found that plane? What in God's name are we doing? Look at how it makes us look around the world. It's mortifying. It's embarrassing, and it's dangerous. It's dangerous. If the president doesn't know better, which I, he has to know better, then my Lord, we're in much more trouble than I ever thought we were. It's bizarre. I believe any country that engages in any activity to delegitimize or impact on American elections is a direct violation of our sovereignty. And if I'm president of the United States, there will be a response. How many times does this president have to suggest things and say things where you all don't just write, he's a fraud? Way to go, Joe. Good job. We'll take a quick time out and come back on the other side with historian and author Rick Perlstein. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. It's Nicole Sandler, host of The Nicole Sandler Show, based at nicolesandler.com, filling in for Brad and Desi again today, so I hope they're enjoying their Labor Day weekend holiday. You know, good time to pick up a big book and just dive right in. And I've got one for you. I'm so happy to welcome our guest to the program today. Rick Perlstein has been writing about, well, uh, the, the American right, the conservative movement, for the better part of the last 20 years or so. It's been just about 20 years since he published the book Before the Storm, Barry Goldwater and the Unmasking uh, on the Unmaking of the American Consensus. It was the first of four books chronicling the rise and dominance of the conservative movement in American politics. Next up was Nixon Land 
Poland, the rise of a president and the fracturing of America, followed by the Invisible Bridge, the fall of Nixon and the rise of Reagan, and just out, the fourth and what they say is the final book in the series, Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. Rick Perlstein, welcome back to the show. I've been unmasking all these years, Nicole. <laughs> I see. Um, you know, I got to ask you, I know you're as progressive as I am. You've dedicated the last 20 years of your life to the conservatives. Um, why? <laughs> well, you'd have to ask my shrink that, I think. <laughs> um, I have a bunch of reasons. I was I st- I got into this. It was 23 years ago when I started writing my book about Barry Goldwater, and I was obsessed with the 1960s. And I would read everything about Abby Hoffman and Tom Hayden and the Black Panthers. And you know, somewhere along the way, I realized that during these years, it was Richard Nixon who won you know 49 states in 1972. And, you know, Ronald Reagan, you know, won the presidency by kind of campaigning against the 1960s. So I began to think about that period that fascinated me so much, you know, as a civil war between the right and the left. And that became a very productive way of thinking about the forces that produced the political world we were living in when I was writing these books in the 1990s and the 2000s and now the 20 teens. And... As I got into the work more and more, I was very gratified to find that it was a useful tool for people who are working to defeat the right. Uh, one of the interesting things that happened with my first book about Barry Goldwater was it became kind of a cult favorite, kind of almost a standard text for people who were organizing to nominate Howard Dean in 2004. Hmm. The people who saw this president, saw this political party, the Democrats, that was very moderate and centrist and kind of imitating the other political party. And they saw in what Barry Goldwater's people did in 1964 to try and uh, nominate an ideological candidate in a centrist party as a role, as, as basically as, as, a, as almost as almost like a playbook. And ever since then, I've been very, very gratified to find that people find this work that I've done both kind of comforting uh, in understanding that, you know, we've gotten through worse. Uh, they've found it useful and they're strategizing about the right and uh, they've taken pleasure from it. So it worked out pretty well. I'm really grateful for my readers and grateful for the support I've been able to get. Well, we're grateful for you because you're, you know, you're telling a story that needs to be told, but I can't imagine that it's always pleasant. I'm sure it's fascinating. Your books are fascinating, but delving into the right wing of American politics for so long, I, I, I guess, I guess that's why you have a psychologist. Yeah, I, I, that, that's what I, I don't anymore. <laughs> I think I'm better, okay. uh, but that's yeah. That is where the kind of neurosis comes in. I, you know, I grew up with parents who, you know, were not necessarily super political people, but they were conservative, mm. and I would get in arguments with them. My, you know, my dad was a small businessman and talk about all the regulators who resented him and wanted to put him out of business because they couldn't do what he did. And you know, my mom would say, "Why are there so many help wanted? It's why there's so many homeless people when there's so many help wanted ads in the paper." Stuff like that. And I would just argue with them and argue with them. And, you know, you can't win arguments with your parents, right? Because they, you know, <laughs> they, they set the rules. And right. that compulsion to try and finally kind of win an argument against my parents, I think, uh, is my compulsion to repeat. And I'm still kind of 
you know, even though they're gone, I'm trying to kind of rehearse that thing in my mind and really kind of get it right. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask if they're still around, if they've been able to read any of your books. Well, yes. And uh, they, I guess in the end, um, I would say that I won the argument in that they (laughs) became big fans of, you know, Rachel Maddow and MSNBC. But I think actually it was... um, George Bush, who kind of pushed them, interesting, <laughs> pushed them into my camp. Although I have to say, my dad used to used to bait me. Uh, I learned a lot about trolling from from having conservative parents. All of us I'll do. Bet. He said, "When you uh, when you grow up and you have to make a payroll like me, then you'll 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 put aside these these crazy <laughs> bullshit views." And as soon as my dad retired, of course, and didn't have to make a payroll anymore, although to put it more gen- generously, maybe he could just kind of see the bigger picture without the kind of press of everyday events, he began to realize that, you know, these guys had created a monster. And he was absolutely livid about George Bush. Hmm. And yeah, they, uh, we became comrades in arms. Oh, that's nice. Oh, so, that's good. That's a Happy ending there. Um, you know, it's interesting because your personal life influenced what you did, how you grew up. Um, this book... Yeah, they all do. Yeah. This, this book, Reaganland, effectively ends with the election of Ronald Reagan over Jimmy Carter. It was November right. 4th, 1980. That was my... 20, was 11. Uh, you were 11. That was my yeah. 21st birthday. Yeah. So I turned 21 on the day Ronald Reagan was elected. A year earlier on my birthday, November 4th, 1979, the U.S. Embassy in Iran was overrun and the hostages were taken. Uh, and uh, and my mother had died yeah. 10 days earlier, so 10 days oh, before wow. my 20th birthday. So that moment in time about what you're writing is etched in my memory. I mean, that, those are the, those, those world events. I mean, I remember when the hostages were taken and my mother yeah. had just passed away. I'm like, wow, this whole major world event is happening and my mother's not here for it. And, you know, it makes an impact. And so the memory of those dates are still very strong for me and my whole world certainly changed. And of course, on the, on the, uh, the day Ronald Reagan was elected, the hostages were miraculously set free or maybe not so miraculously. So, you're writing about a time that, yeah. even though it was 40 years ago, is very clear in my mind. So, um, you know, it's interesting yeah, the I'm memories that it brings up. up. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm really trying to get at the way that political events live in our lives uh, in this very intimate and emotional way. Uh, and it's not just, you know, dry stuff that you read about in the paper. I mean, just to talk about that November 4th trauma for a lot of Americans mm-hmm. of the hostages being taken. And then the fact that election day was a year later. Yep. So election day, of course, is on a Tuesday and all the Sunday papers all over the country had these big first anniversary of the hostage being taken uh, stories. Right? right. So that probably had a big effect on, you know, people going to the polls and, you know, feeling supposedly that America had been humiliated, and, you know, voting for the guy who supposedly was going to help us walk tall again. Although there was a joke. About um, after after uh, after the election, um, what's green and glows? Tehran <laughs> seconds after Reagan's election, right? Which was one of the reasons yeah. people were terrified of Ronald Reagan, and I was terrified of Ronald Reagan. You know, when I was you know a young adolescent and teenager, we all thought the world might end the next day. Sure. And, and, you know, looking back now as someone who was not steeped in history, I wasn't the best student ever, you know, I sort of remember the election being a blowout. 
But in, right. reading your account of it, the polls were actually very close. You say that the Carter people were somewhat overconfident, believing that Jimmy Carter was so much smarter than Ronald Reagan and all they needed to do was get them on a stage together and the world would see that Ronald Reagan is an idiot. Carter had the brains. Um, but it sort of backfired on them because Carter called out Reagan um, about the fact that uh, he was so anti-Medicare. In fact, I pulled um, in 1961, Ronald Reagan, who was uh, an actor at the time, was hired by, I don't, was it the AMA? to? It do was a, the AMA, very right-wing organization then. Right, to do a recording warning people on the dangers of Medicare and socialism. Here's, here's a little taste of it. One of the One traditional point. methods of imposing statism or socialism on a people has been by way of medicine. The doctor begins to lose freedoms. It's like telling a lie, and one leads to another. So a doctor decides he wants to practice in one town, and the government has to say to him, you can't live in that town. They already have enough doctors. You have to go someplace else. And from here, it's only a short step to dictating where he will go. All of us can see what happens once you establish the precedent that the government can determine a man's working place and his working methods determine his employment. Wow. So so this is a guy who was an actor, made great movies yeah. like Bedtime for Bonzo. He wasn't exactly Classic. an A-list actor. And and you even said when he challenged um, uh, Gerald Ford four years earlier for the uh, the nomination and lost that um, his everyone thought he was toast, that he was done. I mean, yeah. he was a two-bit actor and he was too old, old. right? Yeah. But yeah. he... He came. And was responsible for Gerald Ford losing because he refused to campaign for him. Wow. So, <laughs> and then all of a sudden he's elevated. He's the Democratic nominee in, in 1980. I mean, the <laughs> Republican nominee, sorry, in 1980. And he's going against the incumbent, Jimmy Carter, who had a rough four years. I mean, times were rough from 1976 to 80. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in that debate... Um, they, yeah, like you said, the Carter people were absolutely convinced that all they needed to do was have a debate uh, and Jimmy Carter would wipe the floor with him because Reagan was a doddering old fool. Right. And by the way, Ronald Reagan's closest advisors feared the same thing. They weren't sure they wanted him to debate. And it was only, do you remember, um, they had this thing in New York every year called the Al Smith Dinner. And sure, it's a they, big sti- kind they of still do dinner. it, I think. Yeah, they still do it. Mm-hmm. And when, during presidential years, Generally, both the Republican and Democratic nominees come, right? And it's kind of like a roast. They kind of make fun of each other and they tell jokes. And, you know, it's this lovely little bipartisan, you know, kind of ritual and shows that we all love each other. And, you know, on Election Day, tanks don't run through the streets, yada, yada, yada. And Jimmy Carter did what he always did. He kind of gave this kind of, you know, kind of schoolmarmish, dry, kind of hard shell Baptist kind of lecture to the crowd. And Ronald Reagan did what he'd been doing for, you know, basically 30 years by that point, he told this incredibly charming, he did this, you know, charming joke oh, presentation. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's when his, 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 his aides are like, this guy is, this guy is ready to go. We're going to, we're going to put him in this debate. And what both the Carter people and the Reagan people had kind of forgotten was that Reagan had never lost a debate in his entire life because he was you know so slippery and so willing to, you know, kind of shade the truth and he was had that charming grin so the debate comes and uh they negotiated the carter people very carefully negotiated as much possible as uh, as they could for rebuttals because they, they they thought oh if just jimmy carter can just explain patiently where ronald reagan is law is wrong and what right. facts he's watching that they'll that, that he'll win 
And of course, you know, no one likes a pedant. No one likes someone who, you know, like uh, lectures them about how wrong they are. And Jimmy Carter came off looking really, really kind of irritating. And I have, and I, ha- I have the clip. So here yeah, it is from face. from that debate. Um, and this is perhaps where the entire election changed or or right, or was decided. Tell you, we'll, we'll tell you what happened behind the scenes after you play the clip. Okay, got it. All right. So here here's the clip. Gonna this the is, clip now? I'm going to run the clip right now. Here we go. Okay. Governor Reagan, as a matter of fact, began his political career campaigning around this nation against Medicare. Now we have an opportunity to move toward national health insurance with an emphasis on the prevention of disease, an emphasis on outpatient care, not inpatient care, an emphasis on hospital cost containment to hold down the cost of hospital care for those who are ill. An emphasis on catastrophic health insurance, so that if a family is threatened with being wiped out economically because of, very, of a very high uh, medical bill, then the insurance would help pay for it. These are the kind of elements of a national health insurance important to the American people. Governor Reagan, again, typically is against such a proposal. Governor, <laughs> there you go again. Ooh. When I opposed Medicare, Ooh. there was another piece of legislation meeting the same problem before the Congress. I happened to favor the other piece of legislation and thought that it would be better for the senior citizens and provide better care than the one that was finally passed. I was not opposing the principle of providing care for them. I was opposing one piece of legislation as versus another. So here's the thing. Back to you, 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 you perfectly set it up so your listeners know he's lying. Yes. Right? He's saying up is down, two plus two equals five, right? Yep. And after that happened, right, backstage, Henry Kurtzberg, the great writer who was a Jimmy Carter's Carter speechwriter at the time, told me they were all high-fiving each other. He'd fallen right into their trap mm-hmm. because next morning the headlines would be Ronald Reagan lies about his record. The, the headlines were not Ronald Reagan lies about a record. No. record is, it was Ronald Reagan charms the nation and Jimmy Carter <laughs> Sounds like a boring old Jimmy ass. Carter's mean. Um, Jimmy Carter's there mean. you go again. The line there you go again. There you go again. What pointing out fact? Well, it was it was it was in the context of the speech uh, of the debate. Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter had had something very said something very similar about Ronald Reagan having opposed Social Security, and he lied about that too. <laughs> so there you go again was his way of saying. I just explained to you that you're distorting my record, and there you there you go again. This is what you do. You're an ass. Wow. So so the press gave Reagan a pass. They thought they were charmed. There you go again. Oh, how clever. And you even heard the, the crowd laugh. Um, but right. the press, instead of looking into what Carter said about the truth about Reagan, who did right. oppose Medicare, who who it wasn't about one piece of legislation. He opposed Medicare. He was calling it socialism. Be very scared. Yeah, if it passes, we're going to be telling our children stories about what, what America was like when it was free. <laughs> That's right. Um, right. But but instead, the it, press went not on exactly favoring one piece of legislation over another. No, not at all. Yeah. And instead, the press goes on yeah, to, to berate Carter over his brother. Uh, yeah, because he had a brother, Billy. Right. Uh, and that's a big, 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 big part of the the story of the, that I tell in Reaganland. Exactly that Billy Carter was this kind of goofball that everyone remembers if they're of a certain age who mm-hmm. you know basically embarrassed himself in front of the press all the time did belly flops for the camera you know would sit on his ratty couch in his gas station and drink beer and get right. drunk Billy and beer. tell funny stories about his brother mm-hmm. right he was the classic embarrassing brother you know like Roger Clinton or Hillary Clinton That's had right. one too right yeah 
Except for it got a little serious when he traveled to Libya, which was sponsoring terrorism, Mm -hmm. and took a $200,000 quote-unquote loan, interest-free, with no paperwork, and uh, promised them that he would try and influence his brother. Very serious stuff. And it was investigated. But the way it was investigated was reported uh, basically as kind of the butthurt emails of 1980. The New York Times did 50 stories about this in one month, even though there was never a single thing done in the White House that was illegal and or unethical. And at the same time, uh, Ronald Reagan, you know, is, you know, lying about Social Security, lying about Medicare. The New York Times didn't cover that at all. And they also slighted a story of Ronald, one of Ronald Reagan's aides, his main foreign policy aide, who was on the take from, you know, a fascist government of Portugal, you know, who had, you know, um, sold influence during the Nixon administration. His name was Richard V. Allen. He lasted this, as the national insert. Uh, national security advisor for like six months before he was kicked out for corruption and the media just decided they had to bend over backwards to be quote unquote fair to both sides which of course is a way of being biased towards the republicans of because course. if the republicans are willing to lie and you transmit the lie you're biased so some things never change. I mean, when I started doing you know, my preparation to, for this interview, I'm thinking, OK, so what does Donald Trump have in common with Ronald Reagan, other than the fact that both of them are certainly not progressive? I wouldn't necessarily say Donald Trump is conservative. I don't know what he is. I don't think he's got any ideology except the almighty dollar and what's good for him and his family. Um, but they both play other people. They both make it up. And Carter calling... Reagan out on lying got him in trouble. Um, There's so many parallels that now they're just sort of hitting me over the head. Ronald Reagan was a liar, was he not? Ronald Reagan did it all with a smile and and Donald Trump did it with a scowl. Uh Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. Uh, But Reagan did have some saving graces. You know, he was very uh, generous towards immigrants, right? He loved the idea that immigrants wanted to come to this country. And him and George Bush kind of competed with each other during the Texas primary in 1980 to see who could say the nicest things about not just Mexican immigrants, but but undocumented Mexican immigrants, right? Uh, but at the same time, is it is it better or worse when you have a guy who can present policies that are you know equally terrible for the vulnerable populations of America and persuade people that you're not scary when you do it, right? Although, to be fair, um, Ronald Reagan basically pretty much with a lot of exceptions, turned over the governing of the country to experts, right? Uh, they were conservative ac- experts, and they were experts who were, you know, trying to lower taxes for the rich and mm-hmm. lower services for the poor. But, you know, they were pretty much kind of doing things on a professional level, except there were all these, you know, little pockets of insanity in the, in, in, in the Reagan administration. Like, you remember James Watt. Oh, yeah. You know, who was basically the interior secretary, right? Who didn't think the government should own any public lands. Mm-hmm. You know, greatest hits of the Reagan administration. There were, of course, these these lunatics down in the basement of the White House who were um, defying Congress, laws passed by Congress, and secretly passing on aids to the death squads in Central America. Right. You know, and, and, and the money they were raising by um, selling missile parts to Iran to try and get back hostages. And then after Iran... Uh, got the money, they would take another hostage, right? Um, so what you have is everything is is really an embryo for the fully hatched monster of Donald Trump. Trump is inconceivable without happened without what happened during the period of his book. And by the way, when you talk about 
Jerry Falwell Jr. Uh There's nothing Jerry Falwell Jr. is up to that you can't see Jerry Falwell Sr. doing. Right. And Jerry Falwell Sr. was right in the thick of this. This was the beginning. Extremely close to Ronald Reagan. Mm. I have a picture of him practically kissing Ronald Reagan in the book. Yeah, you do have pictures in the book. the, The nastiness of someone like Jerry Falwell towards gays and lesbians literally claiming that they were um, recruiting children in order to murder them, kind of at the QAnon of 1979, right. um, is, is, you know, unparalleled by, you know, anyone in the right today. So the idea that we had some kind of right-wing innocence before and they went crazy now, that doesn't really fly either. So no. it's, it's not a simple black and white thing. We have continuity and change. And that's why the book is 900 pages. <laughs> it, is, it is 900 and some odd pages. A pamphlet. And then, uh, as I was saying earlier, even the notes at the end could be a book on their own. Uh, Rick Perlstein is with us. We're talking about his newest book, Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. Um, so you say this is the fourth and final book in the series, but obviously conservatism didn't end with Ronald Reagan. It just, it, 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 it almost exploded. I mean, 1980 was when Paul Weyrich, who, uh, with yeah. the, the, the Heritage Foundation, and I think he's one of the founders of ALEC. I have a clip that I he play is, all the time, especially right now. Oh, as, oh, you play his famous speech at the, uh, of, yeah, that was, that was the, the rally with, with Jerry Falwell where, where Ronald Reagan said, you may not be able to endorse me, but I endorse you. So in other words, he's hugging, hugging to his breast, Jerry Falwell. This is the same rally where Paul Rayrick says, we don't want people to vote. Exactly. Good government syndrome. We don't want people to vote. The more people that vote, the worse it is for us. And they play the long game. I've been saying this for years. They have been working on this strategy to keep us from voting since then. Uh, Democrats, on the other hand, say, you know, we've been working for voting rights, but but not as clear-headed, not as single-minded focused well, on they try, the outcome. They try and, they try and um, sabotage the institutions at the foundation of liberalism. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Sabotage the universities, sabotage the liberal churches, sabotage the labor unions, right? We do elections every two years. Mm-hmm. But luckily, we have great movements that you know sometimes break out into the uh, mainstream of the Democratic Party. I mean, if you look at the long game, look at... Um, the Black Lives Matter movement in its modern form really starts with Fruitvale Station. You know, it starts with Oscar Grant being right. murdered by the, the, the California Transit Police in, you know, 2008, mm-hmm. right? And you have this movement that has carefully built up this case about what the police are about. And now we're finally beginning to see it bear fruit 12 years later. I mean, what they've accomplished is amazing. In 2015, only half of Americans believe racism was a serious problem. In the latest polls, it's 76%. And that's because of a movement that's done exactly what you said, played the long game. There was also a, a lot of other forces at work. We mentioned you know, Jerry Falwell. This was the rise of the moral majority, the re- religious right. There was also... The women's yeah. movement happening and, you know, um, uh, Gloria yeah. Steinem at rising and Phyllis Schlafly trying to yeah. shut them down. So all this was That's all right. coming together at the same all time. All these women entering politics for the first time because a lot of these Christians didn't believe in electoral politics. That was dirty stuff. That was not, you know. But then they said, wow, destroy the liberal sinners. Men are going to be wearing dresses. And uh, some of the some of the language is absolutely crazy. They were absolutely obsessed with the idea that uh, the government was going to force schools to hire homosexual teachers. Oh, my God. 
And, and then something else I didn't realize, because I always thought that Jimmy Carter was pretty liberal. But you wrote Probably. that Carter had a passion for austerity. He said the necessity for government to retreat from its post-New Deal role in helping America build and maintain the middle class. And then he was for deregulation. Very big on deregulation. Yeah. He had a, a press availability once where he had a stack of paper two feet high. And he claimed that that was all the regulations that he cut from the books. Uh, workplace regulations, OSHA regulations, right? It was very fashionable those days among, you know, there was a magazine called Washington Monthly, which does great stuff now. But the idea was somehow the New Deal tradition had become an old and stale and kind of ossified and was kind of destroying America's dynamism. The tragedy of this is that it was happening at the same time as American incomes are beginning to stagnate. Uh, Jimmy Carter had a lot of liberal qualities, right? He, he was absolutely committed to the Equal Rights Amendment. He um, was uh, brought a kind of idealism to foreign policy that we hadn't seen in generations. For example, one of his great accomplishments was uh, signing and getting the Senate to pass a treaty that turned the Panama Canal over to the Panamanians. It was really kind of a, a deaccession of American colonialism. Uh, he he tried valiantly to get a strategic arms limitation treaty passed with the Soviet Union, but. The conservatives, you know, sabotage that. So it's a mixed record. But the real tragedy is he set the tone for a generation of Democrats to um, retreat from economic liberalism. And 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 Rick Perlstein's Internet cut out. Ah, Rick Perlstein, author of Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. You can find a very accessible Rick Perlstein on Facebook and Twitter and get info on all of his books and other writings at rickperlstein.net. So we've got the history covered. How about current news? Well, a new nonpartisan, nonprofit news organization with a female slant is just launched. We'll speak with the editor-in-chief of the 19th next. I'm Nicole Sandler, in for Brad and Desi on the broadcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the broadcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the broadcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. It's Nicole Sandler, host of The Nicole Sandler Show at NicoleSandler.com, filling in again today for Brad and Desi, who are escaping from the heat wave in Los Angeles for a few days. Though I'm not really sure where they can go to get away from it. Anyway... If you're like me, you're probably looking for real news, devoid of pundits and opinions, and steeped in fact. What a concept. Well, one just launched about a month ago. Let me give you some background. So 2020 marks the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. It's short and sweet, by the way. In its entirety, it reads, The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. So we celebrated a few weeks ago on August 18th. It was the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. And again, the following week on August 26th, the day now known as Women's Equality Day, 
it was the 100th anniversary of the amendment's ratification. And it was just about a month ago that the 19th news organization was born. Based in Austin, Texas, the 19th is described as a nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization named after the 19th Amendment. And I'm thrilled to welcome to the show um, Andrea Valdez. She's editor-in-chief of the 19th. Andrea, first of all, thank you for joining us today, and uh, congratulations. Thank you. I, I covered you up over there. So um, this is uh, you, you come, you're, you're from Texas. You're the, the 19th is based in Austin, Texas. And mm-hmm. um, you came out of well, you you were editor at uh, wired.com for a while. But Texas Monthly and the Texas mm-hmm. Observer, how did you um, hook up with the people from the 19th? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so long time Texas, uh, well, I'm a Texas native, Texas resident, um, and have been in Texas media. And our CEO of the 19th, Emily Ramshaw, was previously the editor-in-chief of the Texas Tribune, another nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom that is based in Texas and deals with politics and policy here in Texas. Um, and she and I knew each other from just having worked in the Texas media landscape for many years. And she reached out to me to ask if I was interested in um, possibly joining the 19th. Uh, This was last year before our launch. We had a soft launch in January. And she had reached out to me then just because, again, we were, you know, just kind of friends from, you know, having been covering the same state for a long time. And uh, and yeah, it's history, I guess, was made. I mean, soon after that, um, I said yes. And and we, you know, launched the, the 19th. And that was in January. And then we had our full launch, as you said, at the beginning of August, when we unveiled our actual news website. Right. So the website is 19th news, right, dot org. Uh, hold correct. on, I'm, I'm pulling it up on this uh, on my other computer right now. And when you go through um, it, right now, it's pretty uh, it's new. You've been you've been going in full swing about a month now, and you have three areas uh, along the top. It says election twenty twenty, changing child care, and health. And uh, further, it says, all right, we're a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom reporting on gender, politics, and policy. And when you explore a little further and you click on our team. It's really interesting because I see a whole lot of women and one lone man. Um, first of all, and it's the chief financial officer as a guy. Was this by design that it was going to be a newsroom um, filled with women? We also have a trans reporter on staff, our LGBTQ reporter, okay. um, who is really terrific. One of the best uh, reporters, I think, in the nation on those issues. Um, but yeah, we, we always knew that we would be a diverse uh, news organization. And so it was our intention that we would be diverse in lots of ways, diverse economically, diverse, uh, you know, in, in gender, diverse in, you know, our uh, geographic diversity. You know, one of our reporters is based in New Orleans, another reporter is based in Orlando, another reporter is based in Des Moines, Iowa, another reporter is based in LA. So we are all over the country. And I think that it speaks to our mission around diversity. Um, but but you're aimed, I, I mean, why the 19th? Why are you named for the 19th Amendment? Well, as you outlined so wonderfully, the 19th Amendment um, was, you know, a way to extend one of the most fundamental um, modes of civic participation to people regardless of their sex. Um, And the 19th is something that, you know, we believe the right to vote is something that's extraordinarily important and it opened up opportunity for so many more people to engage in our democracy. Um, But one of the things that uh, on our website you might notice is that the 19th has an asterisk on it. 
And the asterisk is um, for us a way to signify that we understand that uh, when the 19th Amendment passed in 1920, it did not extend the right to the ballot to everyone, actually. Um, In fact, women of color um, were excluded for generations, really until the um, Voting Rights Act. Um, And that that is something that we wanted to demarcate and recognize that uh, while we do celebrate the fact that women and, uh, you know, that this amendment gave um, people the vote regard right to vote regardless of sex, that this is still a work in progress. Oh, most definitely. And everything really is. I mean, um, uh, you know, one, one of the topics, obviously, you cover at the 19th is health care. And, um, you know, the, the passage of the Affordable Care Act was just the beginning of the fight for <laughs> equitable health insurance for everybody. Um, if we were to get a public option, obviously, that's going to be the first step in what I think is probably a bitter, bigger fight to uh, a single-payer health care system. So everything is a fight. If we get Joe Biden elected, and, and I know you're nonpartisan, but speaking for myself, um, uh, it's it's the first step in a fight to, to make him more progressive. So at, nothing is uh, the battle fully won. Um, about that nonpartisan thing, let me ask you this. How difficult is it? And I know the news business is supposed to be based on impartiality. That's the way it used to be. Certainly when I got into radio over 40 years ago, um, news people were the uh, objective ones. They were the ones who didn't offer opinions, who didn't come with an agenda. They delivered the news. And then there were the people who were the, the talk show hosts, which is basically what I am, who do have opinions. Now those lines are blurred. But as a nonprofit nonpartisan, you have to be nonpartisan, right? You have to try to maintain that sense of balance, that sense of impartiality. Yeah, we don't endorse candidates and we are not of any um, you know, party. And so that is really what the nonpartisan aspect means. Um, of course, we are looking at stories through the frame of gender. And so um, subjective subjectivity su- such as it exists here is that we are looking at stories that um, really do come at the intersection of gender politics and policy and looking at stories through that framing. So for instance, one of the stories that we ran very early on our first day actually um, as uh, the 19th news.org launched as an actual news site was a story that looked at America's first female recession. So this was a story that was kind of hiding in plain sight, I like to say. And and what we had found is by looking at the data, that this is the first time that women have had disproportionate unemployment rates compared to men. Previous recessions and depressions that we've seen have primarily impacted men. But this was one where women actually were um, losing jobs or being furloughed at a greater rate than men were. And so, again, one of the things that we are doing as the 19th is just looking at stories to the intersection of gender politics and policy to find the kinds of stories that we think speak to our readership. Yeah, I see that. And I see, uh, again, the the website is 19thnews.org. And in terms of in covering the Republican convention, you had a story about Ivanka Trump and her speech in which you, you, not you, but the site, notes the reporter, uh, Chabelle Carranza, notes um, glossing over the realities of working women. So you're not, you don't not criticize, you don't shy away from criticism, you just do it without the um, uh, the cover of, of party politics. Yeah, I mean, we are here to point out the facts and the evidence. I mean, all of our reporting is evidence-based, it's fact-based. Um, and what I think that we are bringing to these stories in is instead of just, um, you know, 
you know, saying something and leaving it at just that one note. We are trying to dive deeper into a story and give the context and analysis. So lots of people reported on um, speeches that were given at the RNC, and we tried to contextualize those to give a little more uh, of a fulsome picture of what it is that those those stories and what those speeches um, are or aren't in this case saying. Uh, Andrea Valdez is with us. She's editor in chief of the 19th. And so you are a a news organization aimed at women. I mean, we're we're your target audience, right? Uh, I'm wondering if there are any other news outlets that do target women who are, at least on the Democratic side of the aisle, um, the the major voting bloc in that in the Democratic Party. Yeah, so we are centering women in a lot of our coverage, but we do also look at stories around gender parity and gender equity, gender diversity. Those are all things that are important to us. We want to recognize that. Um, And then, I'm sorry, repeat the second part of your question again. Oh, just, you know, in terms of, uh, I can't speak for the Republicans because I try not to (laughs) cover them as much as I don't have to. But um, on the Democratic side, it's the women who are turning out to be the major voting bloc, the power within the party certainly seems to be with the women, at least in this cycle. Yeah. So we actually are seeing, as you mentioned, a lot of women, not only in the electorate, I think that it's been um, shown through data and I don't have the stat off the top of my head, but black women um, Mm. are pretty, very reliably uh, voting for uh, the Democratic Party. Um, I think that, uh, you know, Latina women also uh, vote for Democratic Party in slightly higher numbers as well. Um, And, you know, that's on the electorate side. On the on the elected side, elected official side, uh, I was actually just um, thinking about and writing about how we are having more women run for particularly the U.S. House of Representatives than ever before. 2018 was very famously um, a second year of the woman. Right. We saw, um, you know, 100, 100 plus women that were ushered into U.S. Congress um, through the midterm elections in 2018. And 2020 is shaping up to be possibly another year of the woman. What we are seeing right now is that um, 296 women are running to uh, be a part of the U.S. House of Representatives. And that's outstripping 2018 when 234 women ran to uh, be a part of the U.S. House of Representatives. So that's a pretty significant increase just year over year. And that is not just Democrats, actually. More uh, Republican women are actually also running I see um, that. for the U.S. House of yeah, Representatives. I'd have to go back and look at the, the numbers, but I believe it was in the low 30s in 2018, uh, or no, 2004 possibly is when actually the the highest record of Republican women running for U.S. House of Representatives, and now it's over 50. Um, yeah, you, 74. Are, you say there are uh, uh, 74. Good. 70, it's, it's I, increased I have, quite a bit since I last looked. <laughs> yeah, I have the story open just from uh, well from almost a month ago. August 7th is the date on this, but uh, Amanda Becker, the Washington correspondent for the 19th, writes there will be. At least 243 women on U.S. House ballots across the country in November, including at least 74 Republican women, shattering the previous record of 53 Republican women set in 2004. So Thank that, you. that is That's a good fact check. <laughs> it, it, it is. But it, yeah, and, I, and, I, and in fact, the 200, I, I can't remember the number you just said, but in that month, we've actually had those numbers increase again. So wow. uh, we had primaries on Tuesday in Massachusetts and that number, it notched up uh, even higher. So close to 300 now. Well, it's good to see. I mean, it's good to see that women are are 
you know, finally coming into our own. We've come a long way, baby. So um, in terms of as editor in chief, Andrea, do you assign stories to your reporters on what to cover? How do you decide with so much going on? I mean, I do an hour long daily show and, you know, I spend the first half hour of my program each day pretty much going through the news. And invariably, there's a lot of stuff I can't get to. Um, Some of it seems frivolous. But when you look deeper into it, it's like it's not frivolous at all. I mean, talking about the president's tweets, I think it's an entree into his mind to let us know that this is a dangerous person who shouldn't be in the White House. Um, How do you decide what stories to cover when you have a limited staff and just so much you can do in a day? Yeah. So I like to say that we are tiny but mighty. That is a (laughs) phrase that I borrowed from an old colleague of mine who gave that to me, and and I love it. And I Uh think it's true in this regard. Um, We are eight writers and two editors, um, and we have a, a small support staff you know, that runs social media and community development and our newsletters and, you know, other aspects of our, our organization that help us, you know, run and go. As for what it is that we choose to focus on, um, there is a part of our site uh, called Collections, and that gives some insight into some of the, the framing that we put around which stories we're choosing to, to focus on right now. So, for instance, you know, because we're um, enduring this pandemic right now, we have noticed that um, the economy is obviously a huge, huge part of that, you know, everybody has economic concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, but specific to our audience, we think that childcare is something that is really um, just paramount to people, especially as here we are in September, entering the beginning of the school year for many students. And parents are wondering, what do we do with our children so that we can, you know, get back to work so that our children um, can, you know, be in education so that everyone can be safe, um, so that teachers can be stay safe, students can be safe. Um, so childcare, you know, extends to, of course, um, K through 12 and beyond education. But, uh, you know, or I suppose that's education. Childcare is something that we've been thinking about, you know, that toddler, newborn age, you know, um, young mothers, uh, you know, people who are trying to, you know, have their professional lives and manage their family. And we do know that that does disproportionately fall to women, despite, I think, a lot of more, a lot more parity in the household, which is something that I think a lot of people are very thankful for and eager to engage in. But women do still disproportionately bear the burden of that. And so we are writing and reporting on, um, child care is an issue. So that's one thing that we've really zeroed in on. Um, we've zeroed in on on health as well. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned that is one of the things at the top of our yes. website if you go to our homepage right now. Um, you know, for obvious reasons, the epidemic does mean that we should be paying attention to public health broadly because it is really important in this moment. But we're also paying attention to other aspects of health with regards to how it impacts our audience. So for instance, we've seen that um, you know, women are being disproportionately impacted when it comes to, you know, mental health burdens that they're bearing right now. They're more likely to be, um, you know, depressed or anxious than men. Um, you know, I think it's roughly 50% of women are feeling depressed or anxious um, since February when the pandemic really began to take hold versus I think roughly 36% of men. That was a statistics that I had seen once upon a time. And I'm, I'm not sure if there's new data on that, but we have seen through our reporting that um, that does appear to be an issue that is important to women. And so it's one that we're reporting on. Um, uh, and, and obviously, these are issues of concern, not only to women, but to everyone right now. Of course. We're in such a whacked out, weird place in history. Um, I, you know, I wonder how we're going to look back on this year, you know, in 2040. Uh, the other part that, I, you know, you are a nonprofit, the 19th 
is, is a nonprofit, um, but you're not commercial free. You will take advertising. Yeah, we do have some sponsors. We've been very grateful to our sponsors for um, supporting us, especially through launch and our uh, 19th Represent Summit, our virtual summit. Um, but you know, we also are really uh, dependent on foundation supporting, uh, small donor supporting, you know, major donor supporting. So we do have a pretty robust and diverse uh, revenue stream that we think is going to make us uh, a tenable organization for hopefully the long haul. I notice you're not behind a paywall, though. So you you do actively solicit donations. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. So part of our mission is free to read, free to redistribute. And so what that means is we will never have a paywall. We really do believe that we want to get our stories in as front in an in front of as many people as possible. Um, so that's important to us. And then we also are free to republish. And what that means is that any other site, any other news site can um, take our stories and following some instructions that are on our website, um, copy and basically do a copy and paste. It's a little more technical than that, but copy mm-hmm. and paste the stories that are on our site um, and and post them on their own so long as they pro- properly attribute and um, credit the 19th. Um, that's also a big part of that. We want to have as far reach as we possibly can um, because it's important to us that our stories uh, get out there to as many readers as possible. I appreciate that. I do the same thing. You know, I do a daily live show, um, but I come from a radio background and radio was always free over the air in the in the olden days. But I believe, you know, I, I use the NPR model. So those who can afford to and appreciate the programming hopefully will donate. But it's open to everyone. I don't I, I, I have a problem with paywalls, although I understand the economics of life in the 21st century. Everything is changing. Um, I've noticed right after you launched Eric Haynes, your editor-at-large, showed up on MSNBC as a, as a um, uh, contributor there. So you're already getting some good public uh, exposure. Um, how else are you getting the word out about the 19th? Yeah, we're very fortunate that Aaron has been on MSNBC talking about the election and what, um, you know, this particular primary has meant. You know, it's been a long primary, and so she's been talking about that for months now on behalf of the 19th. Um, We are also fortunate to be guests on shows like yours. So thank you for having me. Um, You know, we are uh, we have a partnership with Univision, which is uh, translating some of our stories and distributing it to their readers, which we think is really wonderful so that we can get in front of a bilingual audience. We also are doing some videos and some Facebook lives with Univision. So we've been so grateful to them for that partnership. We also have a partnership with USA Today, uh, Gannett, and that is also a way for us to get in front of their, you know, more than 200 newspapers that they have um, and get into smaller markets. And so that's been another way that we've extended our reach. Um, And we've been really fortunate that uh, we had a summit a couple of weeks ago. It was called the 19th Represents, and it was a virtual summit in which we invited um, quite a few newsmakers to um, come and speak with us and and that we had, uh, you know, panels speaking with people like Hillary Clinton. We had Kamala Harris. Um, And so that, yes, it was really quite a, a, a big pickup. And I think that we were really fortunate that people were interested in hearing from these um, guests in this moment. Well, as a supporter of independent media and a believer that we need a lot of voices as opposed to this consolidated small group of entities that have commercial, maybe conflicts of interest, perhaps, I always will do everything I can to promote the underdog. I have a soft spot for independent media companies, especially run by women. So I'm glad you're there. Again, the website is 19thnews.org. And uh, I wish you the best of luck. I'm, I'm so happy you're here. Thank you. I appreciate it. 
And with that, we reach the end of another episode of the Bradcast. Thanks for hanging with me as I filled in for Brad and Desi. I am Nicole Sandler. You can always find me at NicoleSandler.com. That's where you can get my show, listen to past episodes, explore the site. There's a bunch of stuff there. And if you like what you hear, I hope you'll support the program. Brad and Desi will be back for the next edition of the Bradcast. Until then, I join Brad Friedman in saying, good luck, world. We need it.